tells us that at the beginning of the feast of the Passover, there were actually two triumphal entries. One came into the city from the west, and uh, this triumphal entry was a, a show of force. It was a military parade put on by none other than Pilate. It was a parade of intimidation, a parade to remind the Jewish people who was really in control of their city, a parade that would show the Jewish people what type of enemy and what type of force they would actually be up against in case they decided this week to start another rebellion during their feast that actually celebrated freedom from a foreign oppressor. But the second triumphal entry started in the east. It was east of the city and it was not a show of force. If anything, this was an unexpected arrival of a Jewish carpenter turned rabbi on a borrowed young, young donkey. And this entrance into the city was not with soldiers clad with armor and weapons on display, no. It was with the followers of this carpenter turned rabbi that many were now beginning to wonder and call the Messiah. You see, there was a true ruler represented in one parade and a temporary ruler represented by the other. There was a true king represented in one triumphal entry and a wannabe king represented by the other. One was with all the force of powerful government and a powerful army, and the other with all the humility of a suffering servant, and yet the power of the one who made the heavens and the earth in his hand. And the question in preparing for this day, working through a familiar text that we all expect, we all walk into the beginning of, the whole, of Holy Week expecting the preacher to preach on Palm Sunday and Jesus' triumphal entry into the city. We all expect references of palm branches and the donkey and Hosanna, save us. The question in preparing for today that I have wrestled with for weeks now, that's the bad part about taking a vacation for a couple of weeks is you just have that much longer to endure in your mind. What are you going to say on Palm Sunday? The question that I have been wrestling with is this, how did the crowd get from save us to crucify him in just a matter of days? And so today I want to attempt to do something that I don't do very often. I, I want to take, uh, because this is a familiar passage for most of us, and even tuning in at home or wherever you may be watching today, this is, a prob this is probably a very familiar passage. And so what I want to attempt to do today is I want to attempt to take us back in time to Marty McFly back 2,000 years ago and to drop into this historical yet theologically rich context of Passover week, the week that Jesus was crucified, and give us a glimpse into what was going on in the city, what was going on in the history, what was going on in the surrounding characters that were happening, the imagery and the pageantry of this day. 
And I believe there's a lot for us to learn. Because I believe some 2,000 years later, we still wrestle with the same questions in our life that those Jewish followers of Jesus wrestled with 2,000 years ago. See, the context for this moment in our Bibles, as you've already seen in the video, is connected to the passage in Zechariah, Zechariah 9.9. Zechariah had served the Lord for years as a, as a, as a prophet after the remnant uh, of those in, in Israel had returned out of their 70-year Babylonian exile. God's people were lost, they were confused, they felt hopeless many times, and they had no king, which was a really big deal in those days for a nation, a people, to have a king. So Zechariah prophesies, Zechariah 9, 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. And what is he? Oh, he is righteous. He is victorious, humble, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, this would have been a huge deal to people then. And it would have been great news for a people who had no king and were wanting and longing for a king. To hear that a victorious, humble king was coming. Now, fast forward a few hundred years later, and Mark 11 records a picture of the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And what do we find here? Jesus, humble, soon to be victorious over sin and death, riding on a donkey. Mark 11, 7 through 10 says this, They brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it. And he sat on it. Many people spread their clothes on the road and others spared, uh, spread leafy branches cut from the fields. Those who went ahead and those followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And all through this morning's message, it will be important to remember this one idea. The people wanted a king. They were waiting for a king. They were holding fast for a king. The people wanted a king to follow, and people wanted a king to rule their heart. And this entrance of Jesus shows us, I believe this morning, just how desperate we are, whether we're followers of Jesus or not, for the exact same posture in our lives. That we want to give ourselves to something. We want something to rule over us, to master over us, something we can give our lives to and give our lives for. And we look for it so many times in all the wrong places, just like these people were doing some 2,000 years ago. They were desperate for a king to follow, and they were desperate for a king to rule their hearts. So I want to look at three images we get in this passage of Scripture. The first one is the cult. One commentator said that, yes, this was a fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy, but it was also a parody of a triumphal entry. You see, the, the donkey was typically a sign of royalty in those days. A, a victorious general might ride in on a horse, but a king, a, a ruler, would ride in on a donkey. And yet, what do we do? We find Jesus on what? This tiny 
little colt. Now, now picture just for a minute this adult man, grown man, 30-something-year-old man, sitting on this little baby donkey. When I was a kid, probably about nine or 10 years old, the, the best image that I have of this in my mind is my dad decided we, we lived, the church my dad was pastoring at at the time, the, they had a parsonage, um, which, which meant it was, a, it was an old house that nobody wanted, and so they gave it to the pastor. And uh, we were living in this parsonage, and it actually had a little bit of land. It was a nice house, it had a little bit of land. And dad got this idea because he had raised horses when he was young that, that he wanted to get us into horses. So he went and bought a horse. Now you have to imagine this. My dad is a, uh, 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 if I can save a buck or two kind of guy, I'm gonna do it. So instead of calling around and finding a horse trailer, uh, he rented a U-Haul trailer, an enclosed U-Haul trailer, and went and picked this horse up. But it wasn't any horse. It was a Shetland pony that was not broken. And so after a few days of my dad doing what my dad knew to do, which was he knew how to get behind this pony and break this pony, a grown man who was probably about 40 at the time saddled this pony for the first time and got on it. And his legs, after they, they wouldn't fit in the stirrups, they almost drug the ground. Now imagine a victorious, conquering, humble king riding into your town on a little baby donkey. But this also points us to something interesting. If you've ever been around horses or donkeys, like I mentioned earlier, you know they have to be broken. Their, their spirit, their will has to be broken. It has to be put under control. And this also gives us a glimpse of the power of Jesus that Jesus is able to exert power over creation because he can saddle an unbroken colt and ride it through a screaming crowd of people chanting and shouting. Something that would take years for a professional to train an animal, to know how to do. And Jesus says, go get a colt that you're gonna find that's not been ridden and bring it to me. And he masters it and he rides it into the city. But this also shows us the humility of Jesus. Jesus didn't need a massive horse. He didn't need a great steed to ride in on, to claim victory in this moment. Jesus used a borrowed, unbroken baby donkey to make his humble entrance into this great city at the beginning of this great feast. We see the colt, but then we, we also see what's happening here with the branches. And this becomes really important from a historical theological uh, uh, understanding. This, this is, carries way more, uh, I think, emphasis than many times we give it credit for. Jesus didn't need significant amount of preparation. I mean, you think about even today with today's technology and communication and, and transportation, how much time it makes, it takes to move someone of importance in through a city. My next door neighbor uh, is a Shelby County deputy. And for many, many years, he worked on the escort uh, side of things with the motorcade for Shelby County. 
So every president over the last 30 years, uh, every professional football team that's come into town, every dignitary, anybody that has come to Memphis area, my next door neighbor has been a part of the team that has escorted that individual through our city. And he told me this one time that it takes months of coordination and planning and preparation, depending upon who it is. But here we see that this, this almost this, this it, the people were caught off guard that Jesus was coming in. John's gospel gives us this little detail. When the large crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. They were already there. They were already in town and they find out that Jesus is coming. And so they, they grab what they can to wave and they wave these palm branches. And the first kind of reading on this, that, that might be what we take away. That, that's what I took away for many, many years. That's what I heard taught for many, many years is they go and they grab the palm branches and, and they wave the palm branches to Jesus. But historically and theologically, there is more here for us. And I think it's important for us to understand this this morning. Rich Velotis, a pastor in, uh, at New Life Church in Queens, says this from a historical theological perspective. The palms we wave and the hosannas we shout speak to our real human desire for salvation. But also for our real human propensity to control the means of salvation. 150 years prior to Jesus, Judas Maccabeus led Jewish people to victory over a certain dynasty. After leading them to victory, the crowd celebrated by what? By waving palm branches. To commemorate the, the victory, Judas stamped an image of palm branches on their coins, which symbolized Ju a victory for the Jewish people over their oppressors. 150 years later, when the Jewish people are under foreign rule again, they wave their palms in the air and they say, Hosanna, save us now. And in this, they are saying something significant to Jesus. They are in effect saying, rescue us and do it like it's been done before. But Jesus rescues us in ways we often don't understand through the surprising and apparent powerlessness of the cross. Are, 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 are you in the city yet? Are, are you feeling this, 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 this tense, this excitement, this, this nervousness, this, the, maybe this could be the one yet? Are you feeling the, the desperation, the despair of the people that, that now for 150 years they have been waiting for more years than that, they've had a, a, a prophetic word from a prophet that says your king is coming to you. And now, just moments after a, another triumphal entry into the city, we get a picture of this humble king coming, riding on a donkey, fulfilling, maybe fulfilling this prophecy. So we see this imagery of the cult, we see this imagery of the branches, and now I want us to look at the imagery of the chant, of what they were actually saying. You see, chants matter because words matter. 
And when you combine words or chants with a crowd of people, some really interesting things can begin to happen. It can get into your mind and these chants can become truth in our lives. How many of you as, as, a, as a kid, or maybe you have young kids, they play baseball. It was really the only sport I played growing up as a kid. And so there may be others that exist in other sports, but I'm familiar with this one. We, we, had, the, we had the rally cry. We had the rally chant. You remember? You would turn your hat inside out and you'd put it on when you were about to get the slaughter rule done in the third inning and you needed to score a couple more runs. And what would you say? Rally on one. Rally on two. We're going to rally, rally, rally on you. And we would say it emphatic and we would stomp our cleats and our, our, our legs on the ground because we, we had to believe this was going to happen. And boy, does this crowd have a chant. They say, save us. Save us. Save us. And, and what was on their mind when they were saying, save us, save us, save us? What was, what, was, what was immediately in their head, we've talked about this before, when Jesus talked about the concept of loving your enemies, who would have been their enemy in that moment? When they see Jesus, humble, riding on a donkey, potentially fulfilling this prophecy. And they're saying, save us, as they're waving these branches. Save us. What would have been on their mind? Romans. You see, I'm guilty of coming to this text and thinking, oh, it was justification of sin. It, it was being made right with God. That, they're saying, save us, save us. We need to be made right. No, they had their temple system. They didn't need a new religion. Their system worked just fine for them. I'm tempted when I come to this text and I see, save us, save us, save us. Maybe it was freedom in Christ through his death, burial, and resurrection hadn't happened yet. What did they need saving from? In their mind, they needed saving from the Romans. And this is the historical and theological perspective that many times we miss when we approach this text, and it is so important in our lives. And I'll tell you why. Because we say the same thing. It may not be Romans anymore, but we come to Jesus and we say, save us, save us, save us. And we look to Jesus to save us from things, I'll be honest, he never intended to save us from. And this was, this was no small group of people that wanted this new king to save them. Matthew's gospel says that when he entered into the city, the whole city was in an uproar. And Matthew, if you read through Matthew's gospel, he's not one for hyperbole. Luke tells us that the Pharisees told Jesus to rebuke the crowd 
And John's gospel records the Pharisees as being so frustrated with each other over this moment that one Pharisee remarked that the world had gone after him. This is a throng of people coming to Jesus saying, save us. But save us the way we want you to save us and from who we want you to save us from. So back to my original question. How did we get from save us to crucify him? And if you're tempted to kind of snooze off for just a minute, stay here because I think this is the part that matters so much for us. With all of that backdrop as our context, how did we get from save us to crucify him? Well, let's look at what Jesus does next. Mark 11, verse 11. This is, this is after the shouts. This is after the palm branches. This is after the dusty clothes being picked up off the path. This is after the, the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, have rebuked Jesus and wanted Jesus to rebuke his followers. This is after the city has gone out to him and after the religious leaders have said, the world has come after him. What does Jesus do next? Oh man, if he's coming in to take over the city, if he's gonna come in and, and lead an army and lead a revolt, this is the moment Jesus, Mark 11, gives us. He went into Jerusalem and into the temple. And after looking around at everything, since it was already late, he went out to Bethany, which was two miles outside the city, with the 12. Another gospel writer says that he began to weep over Jerusalem. John 12 says that he then went on to begin to predict his crucifixion. And if I have to put myself in this city, in this context, with these desires some 2,000 years ago, I've heard of this, the miracles of this man. I might have even seen some of the miracles of this man. And I'm thinking, Jesus, this is your moment. This is your time. We're here. We're ready. We're waiting. And yet, Jesus doesn't do what I would want Jesus to do in this moment. As a matter of fact, over the next couple of days, he does anything but what I would have wanted him to do had I have been in this city at that time. The gospel writers tell us that he stays outside the city in Bethany. The gospel writers tell us that on Monday he curses a fig tree. Now that's a display of authority, right? The gospel writers tell us that, that he begins to weep over the city because Jesus, as you go on and read, he begins to predict the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. 
And, and, if, and if, I'm, if I'm in the city 2,000 years ago and I've waited for this day, I've heard the stories from my parents and my grandparents and, and their grandparents for generations and generations about this coming king. Your king is coming to you. And this moment happens. I'm thinking to myself, Jesus, why are you going to cleanse the temple? This isn't who needs to be thrown out right now, Jesus. I'm thinking, Jesus, you're, you're kicking out maybe some of my friends or some of my family in the temple. I, I need you to take care of these Romans, Jesus. This is not what I need you to be doing right now. If I was in the city 2,000 years ago, I would have been the one thinking to myself, Jesus, why are you leaving the city again? Jesus, why are you teaching in the temple on Tuesday about being crucified? That's the very thing we want you to deliver us from. Jesus, why are, why are you confronting the religious leaders? We don't like them, but they're not our biggest problem. That isn't who I want you to confront, Jesus. I don't think we can grab hold of the severity of the statement of Jesus when they come to him and they talk to Jesus about paying taxes. And in the midst of all of this, Holy Week, all of this disruption that's happening, I would be the one in the city saying, Jesus, why are you telling us to give to God what we should give to God and give to Caesar what is Caesar's. We want you to take from Caesar, not tell us to give to Caesar. He's taken enough. Jesus, this doesn't make sense. We want you to be king, but we want you to be king the way we want you to be king. Jesus, these are not the things that a revolutionary does. And all along the way, when you, when you have that backdrop of Holy Week and leading into this moment, this historical theological underpinning to what's happening here, it was as if Jesus was demonstrating through all of his teachings, through him riding in on the city on this colt, through the posture of his actions, I'm going to do this my way. Jesus is saying, I will not be provoked or pushed into your way. I'm not going to be the kind of king you think you want, but I will be the kind of king you and all of humanity needs. And here's why this is so important for our lives today. And, and I miss this, I'm 40 years old, and I have missed this my entire life. Triumphal entries only happened after the victory was won. Think about that. Triumphal entries only happened after the victory is won. And yet Jesus on the back of a baby donkey with very little preparations in the city, with his followers armed with nothing more than palm branches, 
rides into the city knowing that he would launch a new kingdom and he would be the new king. Hey, thanks for listening to the Grace Hill Podcast. We really hope you found this message compelling and inviting. If you'd like to connect with someone to find out more about Grace Hill Church or maybe discuss this episode or something else about life or faith, please don't hesitate to reach out to us directly at gracehill901.com. We'd really love to connect and discuss anything with you. And please remember, you matter. You matter.